As we come to your word now, we thank you so much that you are a God who speaks today, that you do not leave us in the dark, but you've given us your word and you've given us your spirit. And so we pray that your spirit would carry your word and plunge it deep into our hearts this morning, that you would break through all of the obstacles that are in our hearts to hear you speak, whether they are anxieties or concerns or distractions or perhaps just that familiarity around Christmas time that comes from us thinking that we know the story. Break through all of that, we pray, and show us new and wonderful things. And will you please revive our hearts and warm them towards your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you know the meaning of your name. Um, Sometimes the meaning of our names have something to do with us. So my firstborn's name is Talita. It means little girl. Um, uh, I've got a friend who's called Philip, and his name means lover of horses. He said, I hate horses. I'm terrified of them. I don't know why they called me Philip. Um, I was quite pleased when my parents told me the meaning of my name. The name Grant means great. I thought they got that right. (laughs) Um, My brother is Bruce, and Bruce means from the bush. (laughs) And I thought they got that right too. (laughs) But imagine how crestfallen I was to discover recently that my name does mean great, but in the sense of large. I then had a, um, a linguist once tell me, say to me over dinner, do you know what your surname means, Retif? I said, no. She said, it's, it comes from French, Middle French, and it means pig-headed. <laughs> I've not had the courage to find out what my middle name means because it might just be another blow to my self-image. But our names are important to us and in the Bible that is also true the names often that are given in the Bible carry lots of significance and import and so I hope that you can see Matthew chapter 1 in some format or another in front of you but if you look at uh, Matthew chapter 1 you'll see that Jesus name uh, is given the meaning of it is given to us as well in verse 23 the virgin well let me read from 22 all this took place to fulfill what the lord had said through the prophet that is the isaiah bit that chris read for us first this morning the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him emmanuel which means god with us Um, look at verse 21 she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so we're given the two, na- the two meanings of the two names that Jesus is to be called. Now, I want to share with you, I've got two problems with Christmas. Maybe you've, you've also thought about this as well. The first is, um, has to do with the virgin birth, which we're actually going to think a little bit more about next Sunday, if you can come. Why, why was it important that Mary was a virgin? It's interesting that the Bible gives us no explanation for the importance or the necessity for the virgin birth. And what is more unsettling is that nowhere in the New Testament is it mentioned after Matthew and Luke. It's never referred back to. Only Matthew and Luke mention it in the whole of the New Testament. 
um, looking forward from Matthew and Luke to the rest of the New Testament, the fact of the virgin birth seems to have absolutely no significance. So you'll have to come back next Sunday to work out why it is important for us to hold on to the virgin birth, the doctrine of the virgin birth. My second problem with Christmas is that it has to do with the name of Jesus that we've just read in verse 23 of Matthew 1. And that is that uh, we're told that he will be called Emmanuel, but Jesus is never called Emmanuel in the rest of the New Testament. Have you noticed that? He is called Jesus, but he's never called Emmanuel. There is no other reference in the New Testament to that name. Matthew is the beginning and the end of the name Emmanuel for Jesus. But then I realized that actually I was looking for answers in the wrong place. The verse that helps us um, is, well, Matthew is telling us that this detail of the first Christmas is in fact a fulfillment of Isaiah 7. And that's what, what, what Chris read for us. What was Isaiah 7 about that had to be fulfilled by Jesus who is called Emmanuel? Now, we, so we're going to take a little bit of a journey back into Isaiah, which is not what you normally do for Christmas sermons. And today we're really introducing the Christmas uh, series. I've called it Somebody's Coming. And we've got a few weeks before Christmas where we're going to consider the various aspects of this great holiday. So remember that Isaiah is written 700 years before Jesus. 700 years before Jesus came, Isaiah made his prophecies that Matthew say Jesus fulfilled. Uh, and it all has to do, chapter 7 of Isaiah, with God's sign to a Jewish king, the king of Judah, whose name is King Ahaz. You can read about Ahaz in 2 Kings chapter 16, if you want to go and do that on your own time. Now let's remember, around about 725 BC, there are two kingdoms, both with Israelites in them. The northern kingdom uh, has got 10 of the 12 tribes in it, and it's called Israel. The southern kingdom has got the, other, the rest of the Israelites in it, and that's called Judah. They were split after a terrible civil war, and they were two distinct nations, but with the same population group or ethnic group inhabiting both. The king of the southern kingdom, the king of Judah, he is called King Ahaz. He's not the most well-known king in Judah. Um, in fact, he has a bit of a shady track record. North of Judah is Israel. North of Israel is the superpower of the day called Assyria. But between the northern kingdom and Assyria is another little kingdom uh, which is called Aram. Are you keeping up? You didn't expect this in a Christmas service. But uh, Aram and, and Israel are both north of Judah, the southern kingdom. Aram and Israel, they are friends, they are allies, and they decide one day that they want to take on the superpower north of them of Assyria. What a dumb thing to do. And they reckon, well, we need some reinforcements, so we're going to go and threaten the king of Judah, King Ahaz, and say to him that he better join forces with us to take on the king of Assyria. Now, that would be a little bit like the Western Cape declaring war on the United States of America. It's as absurd as that. 
And so the king of Judah is, is between a rock and a hard place because his immediate northern neighbors, Israel and Aram, say to him, you need to join forces with us or otherwise we are going to conquer you. So what does he do? And uh, he doesn't know what to do. So he summons Isaiah the prophet, who is the advisor, and says to him, what should I do? And, and Isaiah says to him, do nothing. Trust the Lord. Don't join with uh, Israel and with Aram against Assyria. Just trust the Lord. He'll sort it out. The people of Judah are God's people. They are in his hands and he can take care of them. Do you think Ahaz obeyed Isaiah? No. He rejects Isaiah's advice. He relies on his own wisdom. And so he does something that's quite shrewd. He actually sends an emissary to the king of Assyria, the superpower, and tells the king of Assyria what his northern neighbors are about to do. And so the king of Assyria comes in and smashes Israel and Aram uh, in gratitude to the king of Judah, but then he occupies Judah as well. And so King Ahaz thought he was very clever, but actually the whole thing backfired. Uh, the king of Assyria is called the emperor Tiglath-Pileser. You thought your name was difficult. Tiglath-Pileser. And so he comes and he helps Judah against her northern neighbors, but then conquers her and makes her a vassal state. Um, he charges extortionate taxes in Judah and destroys the economy for the foreseeable future. Can you see what's happening here in the background of Isaiah chapter 7 is that Ahaz rejected the king of the Jews, Yahweh, the real king of Israel, the king of Judah, in favor of Assyria. He said, I'm rather going to take my chances with Tiglath-Pileser than with Yahweh, who is our king. And so in verse 14 of Isaiah 7, you don't need to turn there, I'll read it to you. Um, God says that he's going to give Ahaz a sign of what would happen as a result of all of this. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, Isaiah doesn't know it yet, but Isaiah is speaking about Jesus. And King Ahaz didn't know it yet, but actually it is a prophecy that would only come into fulfillment 700 years later. A virgin will give birth to a son who will be called Emmanuel. Even though you are making the wrong decision, Ahaz, God will still rescue you from Israel and Aram and from the threat that they made against you. In a small child, he will save you. He will do it through Assyria's emperor, destroying your two northern enemies. Israel ceased to exist and Aram went into slavery. And while God was with them against that immediate threat from their two northern neighbors, it was really for King Ahaz, it was from the frying pan into the fire, wasn't it? Because then his problem wasn't just mere Israel and Aram, but now his problem was Assyria. Can you see that because he rejected God as his king, what happened is God gave him another king. Oh, you won't have me as your king. You won't trust me as Isaiah told you to. Okay, I will give you another king. And so he gives him the king of Assyria, 
who taxed him into oblivion and who essentially destroyed the economy of the southern kingdom. You know, as a result of the Christmas, our Christmas carols and Christmas cards, the phrase God with us is largely seen as a positive thing. But can you see that it isn't always a positive thing? What Isaiah teaches us is that God can be with you in two ways. He can be with you in salvation and he can be with you in judgment and condemnation. If you are against God, having God with you is actually not what you want. If you have declared rebellion or war against God, the great God who made the heavens and the earth, the God of gods, the last thing you want is Emmanuel for him to come and take up residence with you. And so can you see that the name Emmanuel actually is a, is a double-edged sword? It, it's, it can mean judgment for those who reject as well as salvation for those who accept. So back to Matthew chapter 1. And verse 21, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. I want you to notice in verse 21 that we are not only given the name of Jesus, but we are also given his job description. Did you see it in verse 21? He will save his people from their sins. He will save is the first part of that. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. God saves. Uh, it's, the Hebrew, it's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Joshua. God saves. It is both his name, his identifier, but also his mission that's built into his name, his job description. This Emmanuel is coming not in judgment this time, but in salvation. Could have been judgment, as it was in the days of Isaiah and King Ahaz, but at Christmas time, it's not judgment, it's salvation. And that's what we are remembering, that's why we celebrate. That's why this is such a precious time to Christians, because we are remembering that God is with us for salvation and not for condemnation. You know, there are lots of different job descriptions that people attribute to Jesus in our day and age. Isn't that true? Some people think that Jesus came to empower them in some way, to make them better versions of themselves, to improve them, uh, to smooth out the crinkles of life. I spoke to a man last week speaking to him about the gospel and he, he professed a, a kind of a faith and I said to him, what do you think, what do you think Jesus came, came for? And his answer to me was very revealing because it reflects what many people think but perhaps are too sophisticated to say it out loud. He said, Jesus is there to answer my prayers. Isn't that interesting, view of Jesus? Very common, I think. I pray when I'm in trouble. I've heard that line many, many times in ministry. It's as though Jesus, really it's the slot machine view of Jesus. I'll put in some prayers and out will come some blessings or some answer to some need. Jesus is good for the kids. So I send them to church because he'll 
sort out their morality and ethics. It's comforting at Christmas time to know about the little baby in the manger. And so many people have got lots of different job descriptions for Jesus, but here it is in black and white in front of us. He has come to save. That's what he's come to do. He's on a mission, and his mission is as a saviour, not as a life coach, or as a healer, or even as somebody who is trying to alleviate the poverty and the suffering in the world. See, this is what is meant this Christmas time, that Jesus comes as Emmanuel, which means God with us, God save us. And so he's come to save. But what is it that we need to be saved from? Well, we're told that as well in the job description in verse 21. He will save his people from their sins. Not from their poverty. Not from their hopelessness. Not from their unhappiness. Not from difficulty or suffering, but from their sins. Can you see it's clear, isn't it, in the Bible? There it is in black and white. That is what Jesus has come to save us from. Many people this Christmas don't know their need to be saved. They don't think that they are sinners in need of salvation. They think they are good people. They think they are moral and upright people. It's very difficult for moral and upright people, especially those who have resources, to admit that they need to be saved by anybody for anything. Because I save myself. I'll sort myself out, thank you. I have my own resources. The rich don't know that they need to be saved. Everything is right with the world that they live in. Many don't understand sin this Christmas time. And you can't understand the truth of Christmas if you don't understand what Jesus has come to do. He's come to save us from our sin. Sin is not what other people do. Sin is not naughtiness. Sin is an attitude of rebellion against God, just like King Ahaz did, rejecting God as God and having another king in his place, normally ourselves. That's the Bible's definition of sin. We have unilaterally declared independence from God in an act of treason and rebellion against him in our hearts. That's the Bible's assessment of every human being. And you can see this, you've heard me say this before, you can see this at the youngest age, can't you? Two children get together and both want the same toy and resort to the physical method of bashing each other over the head until they get what they want. Why is it that they do that? It's because they have put themselves in the place of God. They think that they are God and that the world revolves around them. You never have to teach a child to be naughty or selfish. It comes perfectly naturally to them because that is what we all do from the youngest age. We have declared independence from God. Nobody is going to tell me how to live my life. I am independent. I am self-sufficient. I will fix myself. That's the attitude of the world. That is what we need to be saved from this Christmas time. That is why Jesus came into the world. It's to rescue us from the punishment that will come from the true king whom we have 
committed treason against. It's not the polite thing to say at Christmas time, but it is the heart of the Christmas message. You know, we can express this rebellion passively and quietly just by either ignoring God, which many people do, except when they need God for something, or by, do you know, by being religious and thinking that by our religious activities we can put God in our debt so that we can control him and that he owes us one. Many people live like that. Many religious people have that view of God. I go through the motions, I do certain things, I give money, I go to church, I read my Bible, and God must see that and he must owe me for what I've done for him. That is no less a treasonous attitude against God, for it's the desire to control God, than the opposite response, which is to ignore him and to rebel openly against him. And so all of us need to come to the point this Christmas time where we recognize afresh, and I know that many of you have done this and you know this, but let's recognize afresh that we, have, we are all guilty of inventing a false god, normally ourselves, to put in the place of God. And it's a very interesting thing to me for the gods that we invent are gods who only ever affirm us and agree with us and never disagree with us. They always approve of our lifestyles and our choices and our priorities. But living autonomously is in fact a relational rejecting of Almighty God. It's not just the rejecting of a moral code. It's the rejecting of a person who has a right and a claim on each of us. That is why we need at Christmas. That's why we need Jesus to come into the world. It's to save us from our sins. It's always a, it's always a problem for me to talk to you about sin because um, it's difficult to persuade people that they are sinners. But I want to show you this verse from John chapter 8, verse 34. It always smacks me in the face when I see it. Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You know, that includes all of us, doesn't it, if we're honest, in this room. We are all slaves to sin. Uh, what is a slave? It's somebody who answers to another. Somebody who is uh, answerable to another's authority. And so we are slaves to sin. Much better to be answerable to Jesus' authority than to sin's authority. And so we are enslaved. But Jesus came to liberate us from that slavery. Don't you want to be liberated from slavery this Christmas? What could be better than that? And that's the message of the baby um, at Nativity. We need to recognize our need to be saved. He will save his people from their sins. One final point. Did you notice who he will save? It says his people. Verse 21. He will save his people. Um, in the book of Isaiah, in the time of Isaiah and the time of King Ahaz, his people were the nation of Judah. They were the chosen people. They were the Jews. But in Matthew, it's interesting that his people starts to extend to include some other groups of people. So in the very next chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, um, Jesus the baby is visited 
by the wise men who were pagan, moon-worshipping, aristocratic, Gentile philosophers from a different country. Suddenly they are included in his people. Luke tells us, and we're going to come to that in the next couple of weeks, that it also includes the unclean working class outsiders, the shepherds, who came to Jesus to be saved. They also were part of his people. His people is no longer marked by ethnicity or by pedigree. It's not the religious or the moral or the educated. His people are those who will have Jesus as their king, trusting him to qualify them for friendship with the living God. Those who recognize their need for another king other than themselves to rule over them. Friends, let's um, be aware this Christmas time that Christmas in our culture has lost its historical roots and meaning. And it's so important for us to be refocused on that. So I hope you'll come back tonight to our carol services. And doesn't this look beautiful? And uh, we're going to have a lovely time tonight with our picnics from 5.30. Teresa, Teresa did this for us. Somebody said to me, is this the English flag in the middle? I said, don't worry, there's got, we've got green and gold on both sides of the English flag. One of the marks of the rebellion of our culture against God is that we can celebrate Christmas without ever thinking about Jesus. Happy holidays. Have you noticed? Uh, seasons greetings. <laughs> what an anemic statement. I hope we're going to expunge that from all of our Christmas cards this year. Scratch it out and say, Happy Christmas. Put the word Christ in there because it is about him. I wonder, Jesus coming as Emmanuel, I wonder if you realize what dreadful news that is for those who cling to their fragile autonomy. It's dreadful news that Jesus has come, that God is amongst us, that God is with us. But it is such brilliant news for those who recognize their need to be saved. The one who can save has come. And I want to ask you, if you've not yet done so, will you put your trust in him? Will you recognize your need to be saved from the slavery of sin? And this Christmas, will you change your view about what it's about? It's not about a baby. It's about a king who has a claim on your life. Now will you bow with me as we pray. Father, how grateful we are to you that you have sent your son into the world as a man, somebody that we could understand, somebody that we could access, somebody who could reveal you to us. We thank you for that, Lord. And we pray that you would help us this Christmas to see you for who you are and to recognize our need for what it is.